0: It's Thursday, September 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is the Daily Dive. The recall election for California Governor Gavin Newsom is in its final days, and so far we have seen a healthy turnout for Democrats, lots of money being spent on ads, and big national figures supporting Newsom. Next Tuesday is the last day to cast a ballot, and recall proponents are hoping for a big in person election day push. Melanie Mason, national political correspondent at the LA Times, joins us for more. Next, despite being vaccinated, many people are still worried about breakthrough COVID infections and curious how to navigate this phase of the pandemic. It really depends on a lot of factors, including your overall health and the concentration of infections where you live. Another thing that can help you in managing your risk is more home testing. Tara Parker Pope, health columnist at the New York Times, joins us for what to know. Finally. Congress has a very busy month filled with deadlines and not much time. The Senate comes back on Monday and the House the following week. Work needs to be done on Biden's infrastructure bill. Spending packages need to be approved to avoid a government shutdown. And then there are issues to address over Afghanistan and the Texas abortion law. Jordan Carney, Senate reporter at The Hill, joins us for the long to-do list for Congress. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: It is because of his vision. It is
2: because of the agenda. It is because of who he fights for. And so we
0: are here to say today we fight for Gavin Newsom. Joining us now is Melanie Mason, national political correspondent at the L.A. Times. Thanks for joining us, Melanie. Thanks for having me. We are in the final days of the California Governor Gavin Newsom recall effort. September 14th is going to be that deadline And, you know, again, just trying to keep up with what's going on. Everything's changing really fast and nobody knows really what to expect, but people are already starting to make their bets. Uh, It it seems like Democrats and Gavin Newsom are feeling a little bit better as we head into this last few days. The turnout has been pretty good so far. His campaign has a big advantage in money and, uh, you know, they're they're uh, focusing the campaign against them as a, as a big Republican recall. They're looking at Larry Elder, focusing on him. So, Melanie, what are we seeing in these last days?
1: Well, that's exactly right. I think that since we have people already returning their ballots, I mean, it's kind of more of a recall month than a recall election day. That sort of offers us a, a couple of tea leaves that we can look to, to sort of get a read of how we think that this race is going to shake out. And so, I think the first thing is that we are seeing ballots coming in and what we're seeing are Democrats having a commanding advantage uh, in the ballots that have already been returned. Now, some of that is to be expected. We expect Republicans are more likely to be returning their ballot either in person or voting in person on the 14th. So we expect things to even out a little bit. But really, for those who wanted to see Gavin Newsom recalled, what they needed to see was a relatively low turnout election. The fact that we are seeing this lead among Democrats in returning their ballots means that that's almost certainly not going to be the case going to be a high turnout election. And in a state like California, which overwhelmingly tilts blue and Democrats have a 5 million voter registration advantage, a high turnout election is good news for Governor Newsom.
0: One of the um, people you spoke to predicted that Democrats would need about a 1.3 million ballot cushion going into election day to, you know, offset anybody that's going to be voting on, this, on the day and turning in their ballots pretty late. Currently, They have about 1.84 million ballots returned more than Republicans. That's a pretty decent number to be looking at right there.
1: I think one of the caveats that we should mention is that we know sort of the party affiliation of the ballots that are being returned, but we don't actually know how individuals voted. Right. So there is a possibility that Democrats have decided that they're fed up with Gavin Newsom. They're interested in trying something new and that they're voting yes on question one, on the question of if he should be recalled. But I think that what we've seen from polling throughout the state, really consistently throughout the year, is that there hasn't necessarily been a huge appetite among Democrats to recall Gavin Newsom. Newsom's problem in the middle of the summer, when things looked a little dicey for him, was that Democrats just weren't really engaged at all. And so unless we see sort of large-scale defections of Democrats from Gavin Newsom, I think the fact that we are seeing Democrats have this cushion when it comes to ballots Return so far, likely, but not definitely, means good news for the governor.
0: You know, one of the interesting things, too, is uh, they're saying that President Biden is going to be campaigning for Gavin Newsom as well. That's going to be an interesting test of political power for the president as well, uh, you know, to see what happens there.
1: Vice President Kamala Harris uh, is in San Francisco on Wednesday, uh, trying to rally for her longtime political ally slash enemy slash frenemy. They have a very interesting (laughs) relationship. Um, Now we have President Biden likely coming out to some. Today, we actually saw news that former President Barack Obama just cut a television ad on behalf of Governor Newsom. And so we are seeing sort of the Democratic establishment in the nation, not just in the state, really galvanized. And I think that that is most likely to Newsom's benefit because it is another way to maybe wake up some Democrats who haven't really been paying attention and convince them to turn in those ballots.
0: Gavin Newsom has spent about $36 million so far, him and his allies, I guess. They're spending so much more money than the recall proponents.
1: Yes. And I think that that's another way where you see some institutional advantages uh, on the governor's side, partially because of the function of the recall campaign finance system, he can collect unlimited size checks. And so we've seen massive checks by his political allies being written to him. He can also coordinate with labor unions um, and other sort of well-funded allies that in a normal campaign season, there would be campaign contribution limits and there would be sort of firewalls between these independent efforts. Now they can sort of throw all that money together in a pot. They can combine all of their forces on the field. Uh, and what you have for some of the folks running for the recall, if they want to be to replace the governor, is that you have not seen the Republican Party or pro-recall proponents coalesce around one person. There seems to be a frontrunner in Larry Elder, the uh, radio talk show host. But even still, that's somebody who's maybe garnering around 20 percent of the vote in those polls. And so that, that does not necessarily mean gigantic sums of money that they're being able to rake right. in. And that makes it much harder for them to advertise on television, which in a state like California really is necessary.
0: What are the proponents looking at uh, for success?
1: You have a pretty fractured field of, of proponents, right? I mean, you had a sort of scrappy band of activists get together to get this recall on the ballot. And really, I think, defy a lot of the predictions from political pundits. Uh, they, they got it done, um, much to the surprise of Gavin Newsom. But then, since there hasn't been necessarily, there has not been a... Republican Party endorsed candidate, for example. So you have lots of different candidates who are running on different messages. Larry Elder has leapt to the top of the field in part because he does have name recognition, particularly among Republicans in the state. He has been on the air on the radio for quite some time. But with the good also comes the bad, right? He's somebody who's very recognizable, but he's also never been a political candidate before. So all of a sudden, we have all of these past statements that he's made. He's given some national interviews that Perhaps have had some controversial comments in the last couple of weeks. And so Elder both is great in terms of exciting the Republican base. But then there's also perhaps the flip side, which is that he might turn off some voters who might not be super thrilled with, with Governor Newsom, but don't love the things that
0: Larry Elder is saying. Melanie Mason, national political correspondent at The L.A. Times. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: like testing will set you free. (laughs) You know, (laughs) use the test because that's like a, a free pass for the day. You know, if you take a rapid antigen test and it's negative, that's not a guarantee you don't that you weren't infected. But it is a pretty strong assurance that you're not infectious.
0: Joining us now is Tara Parker Pope, health columnist at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Tara. Sure, happy to be here. Wanted to talk about breakthrough infections. I know a lot of vaccinated people have been kind of worried about what's going on. We hear a lot of the headlines and these breakthrough infections are happening, but I wanted to talk about, you know, how to navigate this. Uh, A lot of this comes up to your own personal risk. Obviously, it's very, it's hard to kind of define because everybody wants a kind of a definitive answer on this whole thing. But the reality is that there's so many factors that go into possibly getting infected by COVID. So Tara, help us walk through some of this. What should vaccinated people be thinking about when they're looking at breakthrough infections?
2: Well, I think first off, vaccinated people should be confident that their vaccine protects them and that they are well protected against, you know, serious illness, hospitalization for COVID-19. I think that it's hard to talk about this issue because your risk depends a lot on how you live your life and what your exposures are. You know, the risk of a healthcare worker, for instance, who's in Louisiana where infections are raising and they're they're around patients a lot, is gonna be different than someone who is hanging out with their vaccinated friends in Vermont where vaccination rates are very high. So it's sort of like the weather, you know, what's, (laughs) what's the local condition is really important. But I think in general, we should feel safe that we're vaccinated we should take reasonable precautions. You know, if we're around a lot of people and we don't know the vaccination status of those people, we should wear a mask. You know, we should follow local guidelines, obviously. We should wear a mask indoors where we don't know, you know, the vaccination status. But I think that if we're, you know, with our vaccinated friends and we know they're taking reasonable precautions, we don't have to freak out. I feel like people are a little too afraid of a breakthrough infection when if you're vaccinated, you've done a really good thing for yourself. And and I think you should be pretty confident that your vaccine is working.
0: What are the chances of people spreading it if you've been vaccinated? Obviously, it can happen. It depends on the viral loads. But they do say that, I guess, you know, it kind of clears out of your system a little faster, at least through the infectiousness period.
2: If one of your vaccinated friends is coughing or sneezing or has symptoms, or if you feel a little bit of, you know, fatigue, malaise, I think you should Remember that you can have a breakthrough infection. It does happen. It's not common, but it does happen. So I think one, we have to be mindful that if we have any kind of symptom, you know, even if you think it's probably just allergies, I personally think you should go get tested. You should do a rapid home test and make sure you're not infectious if you're going to be around your vaccinated friends. So yes, it can happen. We saw in Provincetown there was an outbreak. Now there was a lot of bar going crowded, you know, hookup behavior going on in (laughs) Provincetown. So that increases the risk. But yeah, you know, if you're sitting around a table with five people and everybody's feeling well and you're vaccinated, you're probably going to be fine. But if one of those people starts sneezing and coughing, then yeah, that does put other people at risk. But we do know that among vaccinated people versus unvaccinated, there's some research shows that while your viral load can be about the same the first week as an unvaccinated person, if you're both infected, The second week, it drops greatly. If you're vaccinated and you are infected, you're probably not going to be as infectious for as long of a period of time. You'll clear the virus faster. Your vaccine antibodies are still working, even if you're infected. I think people think your vaccine didn't work, but your vaccine is working constantly. Your antibodies are fighting, and that's why you're not getting very sick, because your antibodies are binding and weakening the virus.
0: You mentioned testing, and I think that's kind of becoming... Uh, Once again, a bigger part of all of this, it kind of waned a little bit. Everybody's saying, go get vaccinated. But testing is kind of coming back into a bigger focus. And the demand for these uh, quick tests are coming back too. just, you know, to help with all of this.
2: I sure hope so. I think that the testing message has gotten lost in all of this. We're so focused on the vaccines. And yeah, that is the best thing you can do. But it's not the only thing you can do. I've got a bunch of the Binax now, rapid home tests. I've ordered some quick view tests for my daughter. She's vaccinated. She was traveling to see her 80-year-old Vaccinated grandmother she tested before she left she tested when she landed and I actually had her test every day as a precaution that might be a little bit overboard, but I was worried because her grandmother's eighty years old and even though she's vaccinated, there's still a risk there right because she's been my daughter was traveling she was at an airport she was you know on an airplane so I wanted her to be extra careful and I feel like testing will set you free <laughs> you know <laughs> use the test because that's like a, a free pass for the day you know if you take a rapid antigen test and it's negative, that's not a guarantee you don't, that you weren't infected. But it is a pretty strong assurance that you're not infectious, that you're not spreading the virus at that moment. The way to use these rapid tests is to use them consistently. So if you take a test, you want to take one a couple days later to make sure. So the second test is more predictive than the first test. You know, there's strength in regular testing, but I, I wish that people would embrace testing. It is the way to get back to normal.
0: Tara Parker Pope, health columnist at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Sure, thanks
0: for having me. In that building, the senators will decide whether to continue the segregationist legislative strategy of filibuster, or whether they're going to give the people of this country the right to vote with no prohibition. Joining us now is Jordan Carney, Senate reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to talk about uh, kind of a preview of what Congress has in store for the month of September. They're out on recess right now. They won't start coming back until Monday. But everything is such on such a compressed timeline. Uh, as usual, it's going to be tough to get things done. We have the big infrastructure bills and spending packages that need to be passed. There's voting rights coming up, uh, Afghanistan fallout, a fight over abortion, what happened with the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, there's so much to be done. Uh, so, Jordan, help us walk through. What are we seeing for the month of September? Sort of
3: the big, hard deadline they are going to return to is they have to fund the government in some ways. By the end of the month, they're probably going to use some short-term extension that will buy them time until late November or sort of early to mid-December. And then also, as you mentioned, we've got the infrastructure spending package. The Senate passed one part of that, the $1 trillion bill, before they left. And now Democrats are kind of in the middle of negotiating the second part, which is the $3.5 trillion spending package. They've got some soft deadlines, but we're kind of watching closely to see if they're going to be able to
0: to meet those. Senator Joe Manchin said that uh, we should put a pause on that bill for now. He's saying, let's go with the $1 trillion package. Let's do them separately. But that's received all sorts of pushback.
3: So Manchin, both at a West Virginia event last week and then in a subsequent uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed sort of made this argument for what he called a strategic pause. You know, we need to look at, you know, potential for inflation, maybe look at deficit, got all this stuff going on, questions about Afghanistan. Uh, you know, maybe we should just just do the $1 trillion and then sort of reassess. But you've got, you know, House and Senate progressives. You've got Bernie Sanders, who had Speaker Pelosi today say she was not supportive of this idea of a pause. And part of the sort of the issue for this idea of a pause is that in the House, you have this commitment to bring up the Senate passed one trillion dollar bill by September 27th. You've got progressives in the House saying, you know, they might not vote for that bill if the three point five trillion isn't sort of moving on the same timeline, which puts pressure on Democrats to get that three point five trillion done.
0: And the sticking point for Manchin and even uh, Senator Kristen Sinema is the price tag. They just say it's simply too expensive.
3: You've got both of them saying, you know, we can't support a $3.5 price tag. They'll probably work to get that slimmed down. some. They haven't said how much, though. Manchin had previously thrown out a figure of like $2 trillion or something he could support. But again, sort of the tricky math for Democrats is if you try to slim that down lower than 3500000000000 trillion, you've got... Progressives who are saying you'll lose our votes, which you can't do mathematically. You need you, know, you need both yeah. you need both mansion and cinema and house and senate progressives to vote for this thing in order for it to pass.
0: You mentioned in an article too voting rights. Uh, you know I thought that the Republicans had blocked that again. So how is that being resurrected?
3: Earlier this year, Republicans blocked the starting debate on what's called the For the People Act, which is a pretty sweeping bill that would overhaul federal elections. Democrats, a group of Democrats including Amy Klobuchar, uh, Raphael Warnock from Georgia, Tim Kaine, Joe Manchin, have been trying to figure out if they can negotiate a sort of a smaller version of that bill. They haven't announced anything, but they sort of have a, a soft timeline, so to speak, of having a compromise ready by next week or maybe the week after that. Schumer has set up what's essentially going to be a test vote, but. More than likely, it's just going to be a repeat of what happened earlier this year because it needs 60 votes. It won't get 10 Republican votes and Democrats don't have the votes to get rid of legislative filibuster, which they would need to pass most legislation without Republicans. But Democrats are under a lot of pressure from their base and their voters to prove in some way that they can do something on voting rights.
0: Well, Most pressure of all, right? The last things that we just saw this past couple of weeks, Afghanistan and the Supreme Court's action on, on um, the abortion law in Texas. What are we expecting there?
3: So on Afghanistan, this is something that you know I don't think Congress expected to have on its plate when they were coming back, but they're going to start their public hearings. Next week, Tony Blinken is going to be before the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Monday and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Tuesday. That's I mean, all likelihood, just the start of a very lengthy sort of multi-committee hearing and investigation from lawmakers who have a lot of questions about sort of the exit strategy and why we seem to be caught off guard. Uh, The second issue on the Supreme Court's decision on the Texas abortion law, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said when they come back, so they don't come back until the 20th, she will bring up a vote on legislation to codify Roe v. Wade, the Sort of a similar roadblock Democrats are facing. The problem for them in the Senate is that you need 60 votes to right. pass that legislation. You won't get 10 Republican votes. And that bill actually only gets 48, only has 48 sponsors or co sponsors, so to speak. You don't have all 50 Democrats on board for that bill
0: right now. Jordan Carney, Senate reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on.